Hi everyone, and welcome to our podcast in good company. I'm Nikolai Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. In this podcast, I talk to interesting leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in, so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm speaking to Mark Schneider, CEO of the world largest food company, Nestle. They sell one billion products every day. They have 300,000 employees, operate in 190 countries, and own more than 2,000 brands. We own 2.5% of the company, translating into 90 billion kroner, or 10 billion US dollars. This was a really fascinating conversation, so stay tuned. Well, I'm here today with uh, Mark Schneider. What an honor, Mark. You are the CEO of the world's largest food company. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Now, you guys sell 1 billion products uh, a day. You have 2,000 brands uh, and control a lot of different markets. Um, so my first question is, uh, what do you actually eat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I consider myself a flexitarian, and uh, that means uh, I don't really believe in a whole lot of restrictions. But over the years, I noticed that I have dialed down uh, meat consumption quite a bit. In fact, at home, I rarely cook meat at all uh, because when you travel, uh, you know, there's so many occasions when you get served meat. I also believe Mm -hmm. in a large intake of fruit and vegetables. Usually I try to shoot for 10 to 15 a day. Oh, wow. And I'm a strong believer in vegetable juicing. Uh, So that's how I start the morning on a self-made vegetable juice. And uh, uh, those are my secrets. What is your favorite brand of the ones you produce? My favorite brand uh, among the Nestle brands, very clearly uh, Nespresso. I think it's an amazing system that combines superb quality with super convenience in preparing the coffee. Yeah, no, I'm drinking one of your coffees now. What would you say are the main trends now in food consumption worldwide? I think overall, you see that uh, with Dr. Google being so accessible to everyone, people's knowledge about nutrition is really on the rise. Mm. I'm from a generation where even at school, you didn't learn much about it. And so I'm pretty much a self-taught person when it comes to nutrition. I think these days, um, the schooling in this is so much better. And then people, for whatever question they may have, they can turn to Google anytime and find out the answer. As a result of that, awareness about the right intake of all sorts of macro and micronutrients, maintaining optimal weight, um, and also about the environmental consequences of what you eat is so much higher than before. And we as producers have to live up to that when it comes mm. to transparency and uh, good labeling and uh, full information of what's in there. Mm. Seems to be a trend away from some of the global brands to more local brands. How is that impacting you? Um, I don't think there is a trend from global to local per se. There's a rising local awareness, but a global brand can serve that too by actually picking up some of the local attributes. So let me give mm. you a good example. One of our core global brands is Nescafe. Nescafe has a strong, iconic standing in Mexico and stands essentially for soluble coffee, as stands, you know, for that product around the world. When you pick up a jar in Mexico, it looks different from what it would like in Europe. It points out the fact that many of the coffee varieties are from Mexico locally. It features some of the farmers that we purchase from. And it also it has a roast profile that actually appeals very much to the Mexican consumer. Mm. So in a sense, you localize a global brand. There's still the trust in the uh, global brand and all it has to offer, but then you localize it. And so you're right, local awareness is on the rise, but that does not automatically mean that local brands are the winners. Mm. And where are you in terms of plant-based uh, food? I read about your uh, 
your vegan uh, bacon and cheeseburger, for instance. <laughs> is yeah. it any good? Is it any good? I think it is uh, absolutely fantastic, and I think it has to because I mean that segment when you mimic um, your real life animal proteins, mm. um, we call it the no compromise segment. So this is not about vegans or vegetarians that want a plant-based diet they want people you know, this is for people who want to actually swap every once in a while the original meat product against a plant-based product and they don't want to make concessions when it comes to the taste and um so initially um we came in from behind uh, there were two american pioneers uh, beyond meat impossible foods that um mm. were spearheading this uh, space we started to get seriously into this from 2018 and i think by now we have a very good lineup not only hamburger patties and uh, some of the toppings, but also plant-based chicken alternatives. Uh, we have seafood, uh, we have pork. So eventually what we want to do is cover the whole spectrum of animal proteins and uh, give consumers a choice. Very good. We talked a bit about coffee. I mean, you are kind of the king of coffee. Coffee is uh, certainly one of our signature uh, categories and mm. one where I think some of the major innovations in coffee uh, were really coming from Nestle. So I mentioned soluble coffee, which was invented in the 1920s and 30s. Then this whole notion of uh, capsule coffee, um, so portion coffee, really dates back to the 1980s and 1990s. And Nespresso was the pioneer. These days we have Nespresso and we have Nescafe Dolce Gusto. And obviously, you know, that was the starting shot to a whole lot of copycat products that also try to offer up portioned or capsule coffee. So two major innovations in coffee really go back to Nestle and uh, mm. we're leading both of those spaces. Do you think you can make it even more premium or have we reached the level here? I think in coffee, we're in the middle of what I would call a 30, 40 year premiumization drive across the globe. And a mm. uh, good example is in the United States, uh, where I know in the 70s, people used to crack all sorts of jokes about the poor quality of coffee. Then mm. Starbucks came along, and then people really were willing to spend a whole lot more for the daily cup of coffee. And hand in hand with that, the quality has gone up. We see this around the world in every market. It may play out around different brands and different varieties, but overall, the willingness to spend a bit more for this daily indulgence and then have a superb product and also one that is made sustainably. All of that's going up. From our research, there is no end in sight. Uh, there may be sort of a momentary kind of plateauing or slowdown in case we do enter a recession. Uh, but usually, you know, after that, it picks right up. And so coffee is one of those areas where you have endless permutations and varieties and how it can be served up. Mm. And there's lots of subsegments, and that avoids some of the head-to-head -head, um, competition. And um, so from a pricing and premiumization perspective, it's just, it, it, it's a wonderful space to be in. Mm. Who at Nestle came up with the idea of the capsules? <laughs> so that was an internal development. But and was it like one person who did it? Because if, if, if it was, I hope they got a pay increase. <laughs> <laughs> so um, th there was an internal um, project engineer who came up with the idea. But then, look, this was a significant team effort over a period of 10 years, because initially when you're trying to handle 19 bars of pressure to make that espresso, clearly those machines were leaking left and right. And they mm. wouldn't have, you know, the stability that's needed for a consumer product that you push out there by the millions. And then by about the late 90s, you know, we had ironed out all the quirks. And by that time, you know, it was really set for prime time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then for the last 25 years, I think we've been scaling this up. So it did take a lot of time. Um, so there was one original inventor, but then there was a lot of teamwork to make that happen. Mm. You're also very big in pet food. 
And um, I guess pet owners are a bit crazy, no? <laughs> Look, I'm a pet owner myself. I have two dogs and, <laughs> uh, and love them. And uh, yeah. so I would describe myself as a dog person. But are, are there any limits to what people can spend on their pets? I think that the key growth drivers uh, are seeing no limits. There are two key, key growth drivers. One is in emerging markets as uh, incomes rise. Rather than feeding their pet with household waste, um, mm. basically people switch to dedicated pet food, which saves some time, is more hygienic, and is also better for the pet. And then in fully developed markets, you see, just like in coffee, this uh, continued premiumization trend. And uh, here again, just like in coffee, there seems to be uh, no limit to it. Um, from a health perspective, when it comes to giving the pet all the necessary nutrients and uh, and uh, also when it comes to freshness of the food, I think, you know, there, there's lots of things that can be done to premiumize over time. And uh, we're riding that wave and leading it. And uh, it's a terribly attractive segment to be in. Um, moving on to um, to ESG, um, since you are in so many different uh, food chains and supply chains, you obviously touch a lot of uh, different issues uh, worldwide. Uh, perhaps we can kick off with uh, with coffee and the issues around deforestation and child labor and so on. And how do you how do you how do you work with this? Yeah. So look, we're committed, of course, to progress in both of these areas. And mm. um, to us, it's not so much something that we look at by category only. I think overall, clearly, uh, child labor has no space in our supply chain, and deforestation is an area that we believe is going to be key to um, protecting the climate. Mm. So early on, we made very strong commitments. Um, in 2010, uh, we had a goal that on the major commodities, we wanted to be out of any deforestation in our supply chain by 2020. We missed narrowly. We were in the high 90%, um, and we're now finishing the job within the next year or two. Hand in hand with that, we committed to full transparency. So every year we were uh, studiously reporting on uh, how our progress in this area went. And uh, that to me is key on these um, uh, ambitious goals. It's one thing to have the commitment for five or 10 years out, mm. unless you report year after year, and increasingly, unless you have some third party verification of what you're reporting, the credibility is not there. And if companies don't even report, then of course, as a consumer, you have good reason to assume the worst. And so it's important here that uh, transparency and commitments go hand in hand. Mm. And how do you work with water management? As, as an investor, we have an expectation document on, on water management. And of course, not only because you have the Perrier brand, but you're also a, one of the biggest user of water. How do you work with this? So clearly water uh, next to climate protection and uh, plastic waste is one of our major um, ESG commitment areas. And you hit the two on the head. So one is in bottled water, um, you know, wherever we operate a source, we need to do this respectfully in light of the local water tables. And uh, we need to be good stewards of that local catchment area. Clearly, there's a balance here. You know, there's water coming in as a result of um, precipitation, for example. And uh, then you have to be very thoughtful about how much water in a given period of time you can take out so that the local mm water balance, water table gets maintained. And then you're right, uh, we operate close to 
400 uh, food factories around the world, and um, most of these food factories need water as an input. Some of them operate in areas that have water scarcity. And here again, you need to kind of balance your water intake uh, with the needs of the communities and the population around these plants. And uh, you need to be sure that you're respectful. And I think this is an early on commitment we've had. We've also constantly put research into making the factories uh, lower usage when it comes to water. Mm. In fact, um, about a decade ago, we were the first one that started to operate a zero water nutrition factory. Initially, you know, as you can imagine, when you innovate something like this, it's it's a project that uh, has a lot of spent with little return, but the learnings from that were significant in the sense that for the next factory and the factory after, you have huge returns um, in the sense that you lower the input of water uh, for the same output. If you're wondering how can a product like this be made without using any water, well, we're using the water that comes from the milk and we separate it early on and then we recycle that water time and time again and this is how you get to zero water use um, in that product line. Mm. And the last topic I wanted to touch on within the ESG space is uh, childhood obesity. We know that there are uh, millions of children you know, below the age of five where this is becoming a real problem and uh, mainly because of too high calorie intake, um, sugar, sodium and so on. Um, and so how do you work with this important topic? So this is also an area that we're very committed to and uh, two major angles of attack. One is um, what you referenced and that is uh, consistently working, getting uh, sodium and sugar out of the products and uh, improving the nutritional profile. So that's work that's ongoing. And um, we've been at it for more than 15, 20 years already. You can only do this step by step because the science is only progressing um, at a certain rate. And then also people's palate is not something that moves in step functions. So if you took out everything at once, people would simply avoid your product and switch to something else. So what you have to do is step by step, uh, take it out and um, keep the taste profile as close as possible to what it was before. Mm. So that that's one avenue. And then the other one is um, education and offering as much as possible information these days on pack, but also through digital means so that people make the right choices. Mm. Changing tack, you've been very active on buying and selling companies since you took over. So how do you decide what to buy and what to sell? <laughs> well, let me say, um, yes, you're right. Uh, we did uh, ramp up the amount of deal making, but um, I'll be the first one to say that um, when you're running a multinational company, you can't trade your way to riches. Okay, so buying and selling is part of a strategy arsenal, but it shouldn't be the only one. And on the contrary, by the way, um, you know, if, if, if you only pursue internal organic growth, uh, that's not the right answer either, because to me, it's the mix that makes things interesting, which allows you to scale up interesting area faster and to trade out of areas that over time offer diminished expectations only uh, in a quicker way. And so to me, it has to be supporting the strategy. You have to decide first where you want to be, um, where you want to increase your presence over time. And then from there, work backwards and see then, okay, how do I get there by internal means? Uh, and if not, you know, what do I buy in order to scale that up? Mm. So take our Starbucks deal in 2018. I think that was one of the deals that got a bit more attention it was very clear that we had a stronghold in soluble coffee and in portion coffee, as I mentioned earlier. We were not particularly strong with a global premium brand that is based on roast and ground coffee. 
And Starbucks stands for that and has, of course, a tremendous global brand appeal. And so here was an opportunity to um, team up with them. Uh, obviously, they continue to run the coffee shop business. We then took over the retail side of the business. And um, uh, with that, uh, you know, create a brand that has strong global appeal and covers the ro- roasting ground and whole bean area as well. Mm. Um, one of the big things we're seeing now is food inflation. And in the first half, you increased your prices by 6.5% and in some regions, even close to 10%. So how, how do you see this going forward? This um, It's becoming a, a bit of a problem here now. Well, that's just step back 18 months and uh, look at how the year 21 and uh, 22 unfolded. No one would have expected at the beginning of 21 that there's such a sudden and strong onset um, of inflation. And lots of people got surprised by it, including the people that we all pay to watch and uh, prevent uh, inflation, and that is the central bankers around the world. So um, looking back at the beginning of 21, first it was container shipping. Um, Think about the Suez Canal. Think about after a year of COVID, all the containers ending up in the wrong places. Container shipping for us, given how bulky and heavy some of our commodities are, is actually a major cost component. Mm. And things started to inflate here several fold. Uh, Clearly that had some initial impact. Then energy went up. Then some initial commodities went up. Uh, Some of that simply due to Poor luck. I mean, think about the Brazilian lost coffee harvest uh, last year. And um, not surprisingly, with so much inflation coming from energy and commodities and transportation, at some point, starting from the second half of last year, it jumped into the labor market, first in the U.S. and now pretty much globally. And now what you have is inflationary pressures that really come from all corners. Mm -hmm. And something where a company like us simply cannot walk away and, uh, and, and, and compensate. To give you a sense, um, our gross margin, which I think is the best way to judge, you know, um, how you're impacted by inflation, shrank by about 3% mm. over the last 18 months. Now, so gro- gross margin is the difference between um, what you, your selling price and, uh, and what it costs to make the product. The cost of goods sold, right. Yep. And uh, so 3% over nearly 90 billion Swiss francs of business, that's 2.7 billion of money that we have to make up. And by the way, when sometimes people point their finger at the food companies, like that shows you we're the victims of inflation. We're not the cause of inflation here. We're impacted by it. Through a lot of internal means, we were able to prevent the slide in our operating margin to the same extent. So our operating margin in that same time frame uh, shrank by about half a percentage point. So the rest is internal efficiencies that we were seeking to basically make up for that tremendous decline in, in gross margin that we've seen. Do you think that we've seen the peak in inflation? I don't think we've seen the peak in inflation because it's simply that the nature of the inflation is shifting. Um, as I mentioned now, it's more in labor cost demands. Uh, people see that there's less in their wallets, and now they roll this forward in wage and salary expectations. And then also, for whatever has happened on the commodity and energy front, there is a full-year effect that extends into 2023. So notice over the summer when a few commodities eased a little bit, people asked us immediately, are you now able to lower prices? But uh, we're not commodity traders. <laughs> we are people that have long positions. We have hedging in place. And um, we, first of all, still have to cope with the full year effect of what went up pretty much in a straight line for 18 months. And yeah. so looking at that, it doesn't bode well for the rest of this year and next year. 
we're trying to be as responsible as we can in our pricing. Responsible pricing is one of the mantras we believe in. What is that? What is that? When you talk about responsible pricing, what does that mean exactly? Well, think about um, emerging markets in particular, and think about some of the products where you have to watch affordability. Mm -hmm. um, this is an area where we tr clearly try to be more reluctant when it comes to pricing. Mm. We're not always able to avoid it, but especially in emerging markets, for quite a few products, you have so-called magic price points, and that is upper limits that are very much determined by the cash earnings of a person, for example, mm. working in the field in that area. And so those we observe, and uh, we're really trying to keep products within reach. There's no point in offering the perfect product if it can't be afforded by people. Um, on the contrary, where we do make it up somewhat is on the uh, super premium uh, side of things. Mm. As you know, in premium, there's the well-known Veblen effect, you know, Norwegian and uh, Torsten Veblen, I think, is one of your rock star economists. And um, it is true that uh, in premium and super premium areas, sometimes raising the price can even increase the um, attractiveness of a product and hence there's mm. much less sensitivity here to uh, price increases. But if I, if I put on my socialist hat, do you think you got the balance between your profit and the affordability in poorer countries right? I think you're seeing from our operating margin that we are sharing. Uh, and as you saw from the gross margin, in fact, you know, we are giving up a lot. I think we have a responsibility to keep our company vibrant. Uh, no one is served if uh, we weaken the company so much that there's not enough left over to pay for innovation, to pay for some of the sustainability drives that we discussed earlier. So, you know, we have a responsibility not only to our shareholders, but also to the business and its long-term prospects that it can stay relevant, not only for this year, but also for the next five to 10 years. And that takes effort, that takes oxygen. Um, as you see, the biggest part of the cushioning here came from our own internal savings, but some price increases were unavoidable. I've heard you say that your favorite thing to do is to spend time in the, the R&D department to look at new products and uh, innovation. So you have... Um, 4,000 people working here uh, in a lot of different locations. So what do they do? Do you just sit there and eat different stuff and kind of come up with new kind of funky tastes? Or? So look, I mean, obviously, there's lots of different facets to it. But uh, one of the real cool setups here uh, is just upstairs from where I'm sitting now. Uh, there is a test kitchen. And so once or twice a month, um, I sit there with our head of R&D and uh, some of the experimental cooks we have. And uh, we then try new products. Um, so this is primarily in the food space, but I also have my own deals here with the category leaders for confectionery and coffee. And every time they come up with something exciting, you know, someone knocks at the door and basically brings a sample. Wow. And, um, we'll just um, uh, have a good time testing those. So to me, look, at the end of the day, if you don't love food and beverage, if you're not a foodie, uh, this is not your place. Okay. And yeah. if you were a car company, everyone would understand that there is steering wheels everywhere and, you know, cars that you test. If you're a food company, you have to be willing to sink your teeth into products and then come up with an opinion. It's not what I tell people is, look, um, you can't eat PowerPoint slides, but you can't eat our products. You can eat our products. And hence, you know, this is what you have to focus on. Hmm. How do you create um, a creative environment? I think um, you need to foster creativity uh, two ways. Uh, one is that fascination with wacky ideas and, you know, the sense of humor that it sometimes takes around that. And the other one is uh, to also make it safe to have an idea that fails uh, because 
you will never get creativity in a setting where people are afraid to come up with the wrong answer or the wrong proposal. And so you need to foster, you know, that free willing attitude, also be very open about things that don't work out right. And um, even things that I do all day long, you know, I don't get it right every day. And so speaking openly about that setting example, that um, it is not about each individual idea that may be right or wrong, but rather your batting average over time. I think that's the key part. Mm. And how important is the psychological safety? I mean, this is an expression kind of invented in a way by uh, by your personal friend, I believe, um, Amy Amy Edmondson. I think you um, sat next to each other at, uh, at the Harvard Business School. Yeah, so um, Harvard Business School in its first year has a fixed seating chart. And so I spent the first year sitting next to her and uh, she's still a good friend. And um, obviously, I deeply, deeply admire the research that she's done. And mm. that area of psychological safety is exactly what I was pointing to um, if you want to have learning, if you want to have creativity, uh, you need to create an environment where people feel safe to speak out about things that went wrong, even terribly wrong, mm. and where people feel safe to come up with ideas that may be from left field and uh, unusual. And um, that's something that I think leadership needs to support and foster. Mm. If there's too much downside in having unwanted ideas or coming up with um, errors that may have happened, then clearly people clam up. And um, But then, you know, they sweep things under the carpet and mm. uh, you don't have an improvement and you don't have the creativity you want. Mm. Yeah, we recently recorded a, an episode with her. Really, really fascinating. When you look at people, what are the personal qualities that you admire? Generally, well, one of the one you just touched upon, and that's creativity. Uh, I think the ability to link a set of facts in new varieties and ways. Um, I think that is key. Um, I think uh, then there's lots of basics, uh, like you know, being able to trust someone. Uh, you know, that people always speak the truth, and uh, then also just very simple things as being on time and being just a reliable team player. And uh, you know, in a large company like this. It's never about just one person. It's about a team that drives something forward. And um, if the team senses that for one specific person, it's all about you, it's not about, you know, the team outcome, then clearly uh, that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. So team spirit and living team spirit is important. Management, uh, that's one of my favorite definitions. Management is working with and through other people. And um, so uh, people skills and just, you know, feeling good in your skin around other people and uh, and uh, working with them collectively, that, that to me is key. And specifically, how do you do it? I mean, you run a company with 300,000 people, right? It's like a big, big town. How do you communicate with the organization? Well, um, I think you have to communicate different levels here. Uh, you need to spend with your direct reports and colleagues a lot of time one-on-one -on -one and need to be convincing and comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one setting. But then I think in the day and age of digital, you also have to master all the digital tools that allow you in real time to connect to a large number of people. So without uh, significant use of internal social media and email, you don't have the speed, you don't have the reach to actually get the organization going in the same direction. You can't just do it, you know, level by level, word of mouth. You need to have your internal megaphone, if you will, uh, to get the message across. Mm. So when it comes to communication in a large firm, internal communication, to me, it's three levels. One is one-on-one. -on -one. The next one is small to mid-sized groups in person. And the third one is this digital, uh, internal, company-wide communication. You mm. have to be devoted to all three, and you have to be good at all three if you want to meet people's hearts and minds. 
you came from uh, Fresenius, which is a really fine German healthcare company, into a food company. Do you think you could manage anything? Um, no, um, I think uh, there's obviously limits, and there is also very, very steep learning curves involved uh, when it comes to uh, tackling a new situation. So, I approached the uh, Nestle opportunity with a lot of humility, and uh, there was some overlap in the sense that both uh, Fresenius and Nestle were engaged in what's called medical nutrition. And as it happened, um, you know, I was a lifelong foodie and someone that over the years in healthcare had started to take a deep interest in nutrition as probably the single biggest driver of good health going forward. So what I described to you earlier, my vegetable juicing habit and um, uh, the, the strong personal interest in nutrition, that's something that predates um, my time here with Nestle. And so that's why I was so fascinated with this opportunity. But could I manage anything? No. And um, so even for this area that had such a deep interest to me, it was a huge learning experience to switch company and switch industry. And at the time when I started this in 2016, I also deliberately laid down anything else I was doing at the time. So I gave up a board position and a few um, not-for-profit engagements to solely focus uh, on this and this alone. Mm. What do you read? Um, at the moment, I'm reading about um, the importance of sleep. Uh, so a book called Why We Sleep that came yeah. out a few years ago. And Very good. Uh, to me, when it comes to health, it's about the trinity of nutrition, exercise, and sleep. Have you got any bad habits? Um, well, when it comes to sleep, I think uh, <laughs> jet, lag, jet lag is my middle name. And, um, and so like all globetrotting executives, I think this is something that you preciously have to watch because if you don't watch it, then time zones or the world around you will simply bite into the sleep budget and uh, you pay the price over time. Mm. Now, we have a lot of um, young people and young professionals uh, listening to this podcast. What, um, what is your advice to young people? Key advice is... Um, Carefully listen into yourself, like what is it that you want to do, and uh, don't be guided about what you know people around you or the public thinks is a desirable career. It has to be a good fit with you and who you are and what you want. And I notice, in particular, with large public companies, that there seems to be this automatic motivation with business students that they want to end up in these positions. But these days, you know, as a business student in particular, there's so many ways to do something similar in, in, in a different setting. So you can be a startup entrepreneur, you can be you know a key player in a mid-sized family company, you can be a fantastic business caller. So, I mean, let's go back to Amy Edmondson and uh, that year in business school. So she had a wonderful career in academia and um, that is equally important and her insights are equally important than maybe making it to the head of a large public company. And so there's lots of different ways and um, Carefully understanding who you are and leading your own life and not living up to someone else's expectations, to me, is key. Mm -hmm. Mark, it's been a, a real pleasure to have you on here. Amazing company and a very impressive CEO. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.